So, oh, you go. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you you go. You do it. You do it. No, you do it. (laughs) What? Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm the least realist American anyone is going to meet. (laughs) Is that your uh, intro wrestling song? Yeah, it could be. I'd love to help you make that song, co-host Sean. All right. Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, I'm co-host Jeremy. And my feet and my knees and my hips are all just exhausted, guys. Why is that? Oh, no. Well, I was, you know, doing my research for this album, and I found that there's a very popular dance for one of the songs, so I've been just practicing the time warp for days. (laughs) I'm surprised you're even still in this timeline. Should have warped away. You'd like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh no, I walked myself into a corner here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna warp away now. But before I do that, I want to say that I am co-host Peter Cook. And as a reminder to our listeners, this summer, when you're being inundated with all of this Fourth of July brouhaha. Don't forget what you're celebrating, and that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning, aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes. Whoa. (laughs) Seem a a bit heavy. That's heavy, Peter. That's from a a film from 1993. Do you know what that's a quote from? Is this somehow actually related to this album? It is. You always impress me, Peter. (laughs) It's from the Richard Linklater classic, Dazed and Confused. Oh. (laughs) beautiful well we have a guest somewhere on the other side of the world right now well hi there uh i'm Mel- hi there oh hi sorry <laughs> i'm melanie bellsmith and when i'm not working as i'd buy that for a dollar's new trans-pacific correspondent i operate an uncomplicated but highly specialized business helping guitarists find their lost guitar picks you know, from the coin catcher in the washing machine, under the car seat, behind the sofa, like socks, they seem to go on a joyride into another dimension. <laughs> <laughs> but can you can you remove a guitar pick that's fallen inside an acoustic guitar, though? <laughs> oh. I have managed to do that once without taking the strings off. It's not very fun. Yeah, that's a, that's a premium service. Yeah, if you can master that skill, then you've got a real business idea in your hands, I think. <laughs> People will be mailing you their acoustics from all over the yeah. world. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every lost guitar pick I've had to look for or find. Hmm. Oh, yeah. They're like all over my house. <laughs> like every like foot and a half square, you could probably find one in. Yeah. I just lost a, I just lost a bottle cap under Jeremy's sofa right before we started recording. And he's going to be looking under there for a pick later. And I'll that. probably pull like five picks out when I'm getting the bottle cap out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That, I did that on purpose so you would find your picks. 
Melanie, tell the audience a little about yourself. This is your first time guesting on the show. Yes, I thank you for having me. And well, my day job is as an architect and I'm an associate professor at a university here in Sydney, Australia. Uh, But my other jobs, uh, because I need other jobs, (laughs) are as a musician, uh, which I used to do professionally quite a lot. And uh, I help my husband run our fledgling vinyl-only record store. And I'm a mum, so I'm very busy. <laughs> wow. What's... But I have time for this podcast today. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> What's the name of the record store? Uh, we're called Rocky Road Records. Wow. So originally cool. inspired by Rocky Road, which is a confectionery. I don't know what you call it in America. Maybe hedgehog slice or something. I don't. I don't know. It, it does have equivalents, uh, but it's called Rocky Road. Sort of the idea that a whole bunch of things are stuck together and they're really tasty, <laughs> kind of like a record store. But also, we live on a very busy road, and uh, we kind of liked the idea of capturing our our locale. Although our road is not rocky, but you know. Anyway, so yes, it's, it still works on multiple levels, yeah. though. In America, we pronounce it Randy Rhodes. Oh, Randy Rhodes. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, oh that, God. that's a uh, that's a renowned guitarist. Yes. And, and I think that the uh, we brought another renowned guitarist today. We did. We did indeed. We brought Rick Derringer's uh, All-American Boy. It was released in 1973, and it's uh, Derringer's solo uh, debut album. And, well, it's rockin', and I think it's a great record for the pod. What song would you like to introduce the people to Rick Derringer with? Let's start with the opening track, which uh, is pretty well known, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo. All right. Side A track one. I believe this is also how the Dazed and Confused soundtrack begins. Yes.
told Sean before we started that I had a confession, and I'm just going to start right in with my confession. I'm doing my Hail Marys right now. I, for many, many years, thought that that song was an early Aerosmith song. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can be forgiven. Yeah, you are could- forgiven, my son. Yeah, thank that, you. I could have easily been on Toys in the Attic. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think I ever consciously realized who did that song. I just assumed it was like one of the generic classic rock radio bands, like Foreigner or something. Fog Hat. Yeah, totally. And I went to listen to this record to get ready. I was like, oh, this song. Okay. But the rest of the record, I, I think, is a lot better. This, this song has been fully ruined for me by the radio previous to this. But the album all the way through is quite good. Let it also be known that Sean does not like to party. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) And this song likes to party. This song definitely likes to party. Sean likes to boogie. (laughs) Yeah. That's true. That's definitely. I have very specific taste in parties. (laughs) Yes. What inspired you to bring us this album as a... uh, Formerly professional classical pianist with a <laughs> hip vinyl shop. Yeah, and 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 this is you know you're a, you. I don't know if we've made this clear to our listeners. You're a big fan. I would say you're one of our biggest fans of the podcast. And so, what made you decide to bring this as your statement to oh. the world? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's yeah. I mean, there's probably. Unfortunately, a lot of records that I would love and would love to talk about do not fit the remit of I'd buy that for a dollar, you know, the brief. Uh, I'm a good architect and I stick to the brief, although I'm very good at interpreting the brief. But it's, well, certainly in the, the States, it's a relatively easily found cheaper record. I can tell you for the for anyone who's outside the States or in Australia, for example, you cannot find a copy of this record for sale anywhere at the moment, certainly not on uh, Discogs, if I'm allowed to mention Discogs. And it would not be $5, (laughs) like even five Australian dollars. So even when you allow for the exchange rate, I don't even think it would be a $10 record, even though it charted at number 38 in Australia, which is, you know... It's not burning up the top 10, but it certainly sold quite a few copies here and you cannot find it. I've, I've certainly never found it. This one was actually procured from a overseas seller for the shop. So, yeah. Um, That's interesting because it didn't chart anywhere else in the world except Australia. No, it did. It did actually do quite well in a number of places, mainly because of the first track. I thought when I looked it up, the only place the album itself had charted was Australia. But No, I think this is one of the vagaries of Wikipedia, is that it only lists the ones it can find, you know. So I don't know if it's only charted uh, in Australia, but or it's entered on the... I don't, I don't know, but it's it certainly did sell quite a few... Well, certainly the, the song, the single, sold quite a lot. I'd have to actually delve. I didn't delve that far. <laughs> um, I, I'm pretty sure that... You see this album pretty commonly in the in the United States. Yes. Yeah, people some people were buying this record over here yes, for sure. Yes, and and I think as you said it's been ruined by classic radio. And see again for us in Australia it probably was played on the radio back in the 70s and hence it charted, but it's not a 
it didn't stick. It's not a song you would hear necessarily on a classic FM, a classic, uh, sorry, classic, a classic rock radio station here in Australia now, whereas there are contemporaries of Derringer's who absolutely you would hear. So I think that's an interesting kind of cultural differences that we have with some of these records. But look, it's a, I just think it's a cracker of a record. You know, I think it's, what I, like I said, it's, it's sort of an unbridled, it, it shows an unbridled, joy in being a musician and and just loving playing these songs and it really comes through in the recording it comes through in the delivery comes through in his guitar playing which is virtuosic there's no doubt and another reason why I wanted to bring this record was because it uh, both Derringer and some of the musicians on the record because there's some really interesting people that he played with that I think we'll probably discuss later yeah, this is a pretty stacked record when it comes to the lineup, Completely. for sure. I was surprised to see some of those names. And well, yeah, so the, the you know, that there's some really amazing connections. It connects to a number of, as you guys say, I'd buy that for a dollar alumni. And I thought, well, that was a really interesting move. Also that you haven't done a lot of music in this particular genre. And it's, uh, again, you know, genres are things that I get a bit annoyed at, but it's an easy way of discussing music as a starting point. You know, my teenage son is really into rate your music, you know, and there's genres that I've never heard of and genres that have got like, you know, four hyphens and you just think, oh my gosh, it's like someone ordering a <laughs> coffee where they say, I want a decaf, blah, blah, latte with two sugars and, you know, and you can just see the barista's eyes roll into the back of their heads, you know, and and I just think, yeah, why do we do that to music? I find that exceptionally frustrating. Can we just enjoy the music for the for music's sake rather than kind of shoving things into pigeonholes because it's convenient to do so. And of course we need to do that. Otherwise the record store would be a nightmare to manage as well. And people would never find stuff. But <laughs> the flip side of it is because is that we become obsessed with it. And and I kind of like to fight against that. So Yeah. Well when you know when a youngster we a few episodes back we mentioned vaporwave. We've mentioned that a few <laughs> times on the podcast. When a when a youngster likes to uh, bring up a new genre that I've never heard of, like Vaporwave. I just try to throw something back at them, like, from way back, like Zydeco. (laughs) (laughs) And how does that go down, Peter? Oh, it just makes me look even older than I already did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It always backfires, which is the whole intention. Oh, boy. (laughs) The only other thing I would say is that I think this record probably deserves a little bit more attention than it gets you know in terms of its legacy especially because uh rick has been actively ruining his legacy yeah. in recent years it would seem <laughs> oh we'll get there, we'll get yeah. there. i can tell sean just can't wait to chuck poor old rick under the bus <laughs> yeah this is why we don't do this genre very often sean and classic rock <laughs> Woo! yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh dear well, yeah, so Rick Derringer, who is this guy? I've heard this guy's name. Well, he's had many lives, and we've alluded to just a few of them so far. There's others. You should have yes. said, hang on, Peter. Peter, hang on. <laughs> hang on. <laughs> well done, Peter. Well, Rick Zeringer, as his real name is. What? Yeah. Name is not actually Rick Derringer. And he didn't actually legally change it until like the 2000s sometime. 
Oh, wow. He was uh, performing under Rick Derringer, named after the handgun. Handgun? I think that's what those are, right? Derringers? You're thinking of Jesse Winchester, the rifle. (laughs) (laughs) No, he named himself after the Derringer pistol, whatever. His real name's Rick Zeringer, anyways. He was born August 5th, 1947, in Salina, Ohio. Moved to Fort Recovery, Ohio, and was inspired by his Uncle Jim, who was a guitar player around Ohio. And he saw his Uncle Jim playing his guitar in the kitchen one day, and he's like, holy shit, I need to do that. So... So he buys a, well, he doesn't buy a guitar. His parents buy him a guitar for his ninth birthday. They end up moving to Union City, Indiana, where he forms his first band, the McCoys. Holy cronoli. Yeah. And, you know, they're playing some music, and by age 17, Rick was hired to play with a New York band called the Strange Loves. And while he was off doing that, you know, he got hit up. They were trying to get someone to record this song, Hang On Sloopy. And he's like, yeah, me and my band will do it. And then he goes in and records all the instruments himself. <laughs> and then his band comes in to sing the song, which becomes a mega hit. So wait, he was he went aside to go do this band Strange Love, but obviously Hang On Sloopy is by the McCoys. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't do that with the Strange Loves. He just like saw this opportunity come up. They were looking for somebody to record this song. Uh-huh. And he's like, "Oh yeah, my band will do it, the McCoys." <laughs> the McCoys me. He's Yeah. <laughs> he's like Dave Grohl or Prince. <laughs> yeah. So, a clever boy. So, yeah, that became a big hit song. The McCoys were a big hit band. This is like life number one for Rick Derringer here. The song Hang On Sloopy was the first rock song to be played in the USSR publicly, which was an interesting uh, tidbit I found. (laughs) That's what broke through. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it is such a universally likable song, though. Like, it's so catchy and so pleasant. How could you not like the song Hang On Sloopy, even though it's such a silly, goofy old song? Yeah, it has that... Louis Louis bounce to it, but with a little bit more yeah. of a hook. Mm-hmm. That infectious energy. So I admit that I had no idea what Hang On Sloopy was. I was like, what is this crazy title for a song? It really sounded like a real uh, novelty sort of song. It's actually a song about a jazz singer who was from Ohio, whose surname was Sloop. And the song is, is kind of influenced or or kind of inspired by her and this song apparently is one of Ohio's state songs or gets played at football games I'm like really (laughs) sort of yeah anyway the mind boggles so when you checked the song out Melanie did you not know it at all no I had never heard it and I've listened to a lot of music in my life and I again I think this is what's interesting about appreciating music from a a sort of different cultural context and a different kind of musical 
background is that you you know you there are definitely things definitely albums and and artists and songs that you guys have presented on here or that I hear in places I'm like wow that's just never gotten any traction certainly no long-term traction in in Australia or Australia and New Zealand because they're often grouped together down under (laughs) well to be just the reverse of that I think your average American wouldn't recognize streets of your town by the go-betweens no they would not plays everywhere (laughs) (laughs) that's that's just like in the air in australia right oh absolutely i think well i think there's probably quite unfortunately there's probably quite a few australians that don't know the go-betweens sadly i think probably more universally loved in australia is paul kelly and i would love to know whether he's well known or or known in the states because he's just such an amazing songwriter and he just crosses boundaries and and has managed to do so for kind of four generations. And have you guys? Peter and I are doing like the head shrug, like I don't know what that is. Wow. You? No. Okay. <laughs> kind no. of thing. So interesting. Yeah. So it, it is. Uh, you know, there are these things that just don't seem to be able to jump on a boat and go elsewhere. And I, and I think like the go-betweens who who are respected elsewhere, it's because they spend a lot of time. We're getting way off track here, but like like Nick Cave, who now <laughs> lives permanently in the UK, you know, if you want to cement mm-hmm. that international reputation, you've got to kind of stay away for a while. That's why ACDC, getting back to Rick Derringer type music, that's why ACDC <laughs> are such a conundrum because they are massive in the States and yet they still live here in Sydney like uh, you know, people, I, I reckon there's probably two degrees of separation between me and Angus Young. I'm sure I know someone who probably knows him, who knows him. You know, it's it's quite fascinating that people who do amazingly well in the States, as opposed to, say, elsewhere, can stay in Australia. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Anyway, or they choose to stay in Australia because they don't get hunted by the paparazzi. Anyway. Before we get two out in the Sorry. weeds here let's uh <laughs> let's turn back to another rick derringer track which i think you mean before we get too far in the outback yeah. before we get- <laughs> you can get very very lost in the outback oh, without a compass peter <laughs> never leave home without it nope what uh track would you like to go to next well no? i think the second track we had was hold which was co-written with patty smith which we can talk about where he might have met Patty Smith. Punk legend. Wait, wait, is this a Blue Oyster Cult album? <laughs> well, she only she wrote the lyrics and she doesn't sing on the track. Yeah. She, uh, but still, it's, there's a, it's kind of a good track to go to next because it talks about that next stage in Rick's life, I think. Yeah, it's really fascinating to me that punk icon Patty Smith kind of started out with these classic rock bands. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one's definitely my favorite track on the album. It's a good song. Dream. Mm-hmm. 
like when genres adopt what is commonly called a cinematic feel and i think that track is a good example of kind of a cinematic rock song you got the strings and this epic production but it still grooves it still has forward movement in it oh it's interesting you know there's a whole range of reviews of this record from the time since then you know it's interesting that lenny Kay from patty smith's band you know he wrote the review of this for rolling stone back in the day and yet you read other rolling stone reviews since and they're far less kind (laughs) of this album and of this track you know and and some people you know you kind of read these comments saying oh it's cheesy it's overproduced with all the strings and i think yes but that's kind of unfair and you have to kind of put yourself back into 1972 73 when this was recorded and think about what else was being done at the time. And I can think of so many other records from this time where not only were they relatively eclectic, but there were string-based arrangements and it was a thing that people wanted to do. They'd kind of moved the strings from the Motown sort of uh, wall of sound string arrangement and they'd moved, as, as Sean said, more into these cinematic long lines. And I think this song captures that really well. And he, the melody is beautiful. Derringer is very skilled at writing attractive melodies and not everyone does that in hard rock or blues rock songs. They're not always attractive melodies and he's really Mm -hmm. committed to the melody and I admire that and I think that kind of marks him out as being a bit different. Yeah, and it's easy to see how people, when this record came out, would think of the strings as being cheesy because they were... They were the mark of pop music just a couple decades before that. You know, that was the previous generation that the rockers were rebelling against at that point. It was all the lounge music and the the music and easy listening were all the string heavy stuff. But you can always take the best of previous genres and generations and like translate it into something new, which I think he did a great job of on this track. Yeah, you're right. The Beatles were embarrassed by yesterday with the strings on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Really? I did Mm -hmm. not know that story. Yeah, yeah, they, you know, I think they thought ex- they thought of it kind of exactly what Sean was describing as being like, it's made it sound like something from the generation past, but becomes one of the biggest songs of their career. But 
<laughs> yeah, it's just certain things like that, things that become stigmatized. <laughs> yeah. Strings. And I still I still hear pe- some people use well, like strings blah as a criticism. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that is because we think schmaltz. You know, I think I think sometimes when I think schmaltzy strings, I'm thinking big Strauss waltzes, you know, like it, even in classical music, c- strings can evoke, you know, certain reactions from people. It's like, ugh. <laughs> so, <laughs> even from whence it came. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, back to the Patti Smith connection. So, Derringer, he hung out in New York, uh, sort of still kind of in the McCoys and... But he was he. There's a couple of interviews where he talks about how he became very conscious that the McCoys were being seen as that bubblegum type music, and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to move closer to to rock music, and and so he was hanging out with all these different people in New York, and he ended up hanging out in at the factory, you know, with Andy Warhol. And there's no doubt that living in New York, mixing in those circles, hanging out at the factory you know, he would have met that that's where he would have met Patty Smith and, and so many other people who at some, who would have led him to then meeting some of the people who are on this this record as as well. And I think um I mean the 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 Warhol connection is interesting because if I can just diverge and talk about the cover art, because this is not the cover art of a a typical blues rock <laughs> record necessarily. It's certainly focused on the guitar. So you've got no doubt you're about to listen to a record with a lot of guitar on it. But the, the photo and the, the cover work was done by uh, a Japanese-born American photographer, Hiro, who worked for, as in spelt H-I-R-O, who worked for Harper's Bazaar and moved in, was, was in Warhol's inner circle. And he actually did quite a number of interesting albums from the time he did stuff for Miles Davis he did stuff for for Johnny Winter who I'm sure we'll talk about because <laughs> Derringer's you know kind of career is very much intertwined with Johnny Winter and but it's kind of interesting because these again are pe- not people that you would associate with blues rock you know you don't really associate the factory or or Andy Warhol or fashion photographers with with blues rock, and yet this it's really kind of mind blowing in a way. And and Hero presents yeah. Derringer, you know, as this kind of glammed up, kind of in ecstasy. I'm playing guitar, and this is my I'm living my best life. Kind of look on his face, like I'm just in the throes of something amazing. And it's again, it's not really an album cover that you look at and go, oh yeah, that looks like a a blues rock um, or a hard rock, a classic rock record, except for the guitar on the front cover, <laughs> you know. Um, sure. And in fact, for years <laughs> later, Derringer blamed his manager for, you know, the cover making him look sort of too glammed up. But I would argue that his follow-up record, he looks far more effeminate than he does on the cover of this record. So <laughs> you, you tell me. But <laughs> but it's it's interesting. To help paint the picture, Rick is wearing silver space gloves and like a silver flight jacket as well on that, which <laughs> definitely rings a little factory. There's like all those Andy Warhol silver pillow things, and yeah, I could see it. If he was wearing sunglasses and there was a song about heroin on here, it would be a Velvet Underground album. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's funny to think of him and Lou Reed hanging out together at the factory. <laughs> it, it, no, Nico it is, popping in. It is weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But it did seem to, as you said, he really didn't like being labeled bubblegum pop. And the McCoys kind of took a psychedelic turn in the late 60s that really flopped. It commercially did not go over at all because their audience didn't want to hear that. And that led to him uh, hitching his wagon to Johnny Winter, as you mentioned. I mean, Johnny Winter basically asked the, the McCoys to be his backing band in a way. And so this, so uh, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo, which we heard first, was actually written and recorded on a 1970 record with Johnny Winter first. And then it appeared on another album with White Trash, which is a Johnny Winter outfit, before it made its way onto All American Boys. So the song already had a whole lot of history before it even got onto Derringer's own record, which is kind of interesting. It's like he gave the song a couple of goes before he did his own version. He'd been refining it for years, perfecting the rock and roll hoochie. (laughs) Such a strange term. Anyway. (laughs) A weird thing about Johnny Winter, about one month before he died, he did an appearance and signing at the record store that Sean and I used to work at back in 2014. Unfortunately, I did not get to interact with him. He had a bunch of handlers who were very concerned with just letting Johnny come in, do his thing, and leave. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think you missed that. You weren't there that day, were you, Sean? No, I set it up, and then I was gone. Other people were running it for the actual event. I don't remember why. Yeah. Yeah, it was so strange, because a, a month later, he was gone. He he played at Bells in Kalamazoo. That's why he was in town. Yeah, right. Interesting. Oh, there you go. I mean, both Johnny and Edgar are just such compelling performers. You watch recordings and videos, like you watch videos and and watch them play and they're just you know i mean johnny winters um or edgar winters recorded as saying no i think it was johnny saying that when he met derringer that he felt that he had met a kindred spirit like a, a kindred musical spirit and i guess that's why he was happy to take a gamble having the mccoys as his his backup band so to speak uh because he felt that he had found this kindred spirit in derringer and uh, look, I think what's I think where that also leads us is to talk about how Derringer has he's very socialized as a musician. Like he's very keen on networking and and he's quite strategic about his career. Maybe not in a uber planned way, but he he knows the value of what he can bring. And so, uh, whilst on his own records, sometimes he gets accused of wandering all around the park with all these different sort of genres or, or types of songs. And this, this album can be accused of that in, in some respects, although I think it's actually the charm of the record. He's worked with so many amazing people and we don't have to talk about that now, but he just seems to know everybody. He's worked with so many people and lots of people talk really warmly about him and that he's humble and modest and all these other things, which, you know, as Sean alluded to, he's kind of transgressed his legacy a little bit in recent times but there's a lot of <laughs> interesting people that he's worked he seems to have stored up an awful lot of goodwill over the last few decades with a whole bunch of people who have a lot of time for him and so as much as he sounds like he's oh a- you've sorry 
Oh, you've hinted too much. Oh, at, I'm so sorry. List. Let's let's go into this list. <laughs> well, we got Steely Dan. He played with yes, a little Todd Rundgren, who was uh, eyed by that alum. He ripped the solos on Air Supply and Bonnie Tyler's mega hit Total Eclipse of the Heart. He collaborated with Cindy Lauper on some stuff. He made Hulk Hogan's theme song that Sean alluded to, Real American, along with the entire WWF like album that was made, which was mostly just wrestler intros. And yeah, he made he made two of them, right? Yeah, driver. <laughs> the first one went over so well, he made another one. <laughs> and then the other one I have written down here is that he produced Weird Al Yankovic's first album, which ended up being his only Grammy he's won. <laughs> and he's the one doing the Eddie Van Halen style solos mm-hmm. on Beat It. And I, some sources I had read said that he actually discovered Weird Al. Yes, Whatever he... Whatever that means, you know, anybody can claim that. <laughs> There's an interesting interview where he talks about how he was really interested in, um, he liked sports. Spike Jones, he's sort of a novelty sort of musician, singer, comedian in the the 50s or 60s in America. Mm-hmm. And he'd heard about Weird Al and, and he went and saw him and, and he's like, you know, if you can be a capable musician and be really funny, you have an audience because generally people do one well and not the other. And so he uh, kind of hitched himself to, to Weird Al, who he then produced, I think, six albums with in the 80s, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, so he has – Derringer is a very interesting guy. Like he, he's, It's interesting how these things he was kind of fascinated by even as a kid ended up leading him down various paths well into his career. Very true. Well, let's get into yet another track. Melanie, what do we have on tap? Let's listen to let's listen to Joyride. Side A, track two. Perfect.
in the States on classic rock radio, there are a few instrumentals that are canon. Jessica by the Allman Brothers comes to mind. I really feel like that one could use to be worked in. I feel like that should have been a hit instrumental or something that retroactively it's it's got all the sounds in there are just so classic rock sounding to me but they're tasteful there were some interesting choices there were some strings in there even weren't there yes. yeah and and they worked i thought they elevated the the piece it's because it was full of rippers <laughs> <laughs> so often on rock records an instrumental track is just like a filler or a throwaway or it's a chance to just really show off your virtuosity but he seems to kind of treat the instrumentals with a lot more care on this album like they're actually good songs like the could have and probably should have been on the radio, like Peter said. I'm going to make a campaign, <laughs> reinvent classic rock radio here. The titles of on, of the songs on this record are so, to me, if you've never listened to the music, you could probably guess that it's a classic rock record, you know, you just read the titles. <laughs> I think it's interesting that thematically he can, he calls that piece... He's named that piece Joyride and then connects it to Teenage Queen, which ultimately is about, uh, which is also actually a really, really well-written, beautiful song, but of course is about a, you know, a, uh, a guy taking his teenage girlfriend, he's hoping they're legal, out somewhere in the car and he spins out on the, on the gravel somewhere and she gets killed and he spends his whole life with PTSD. You know, it's sort of, it's pretty depressing actually. Like a couple of the songs on this, as much as he's, celebrating the rock and roll party lifestyle, you know, with uncomplicated and cheap tequila and slide on over slinky. You know, you listen to Teenage Queen or even The Airport Giveth, which is kind of also in that epic rock drama cinematic experience. There's, a lot of, there's some strings on that track as well, and which is about just how numbing touring is as a musician. And, you know, I have other family members who are, touring musicians and it can be pretty wearing it can be pretty wearing so he's not afraid to kind of delve into territory that's uh not just the rock party record if that makes sense yeah well you know you you got your classic rock ride songs like slow ride and free ride he yeah. takes joyride and drives it right into leader of the pack or last kiss <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yep yeah yeah, there is a weird history of songs about car crashes in the rock and roll and pop music world. Maybe someone should yeah. do a show about that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to that list of rippers who are on that song and on the rest of this album. Yeah. Uh, well, I think Edgar Winter features significantly on the record and there's no surprises why. And he's, I would, as a pianist, I kind of rate him very highly as a, as a musician. I think he's, you know, hugely influential. There's probably stacks of people who, who adopt the stylistics and the approach that he, you know, kind of established in the seventies and they wouldn't even know that they're playing in that style. I can think of an Australian band that did very well in the kind of nineties and early two thousands who've come back. And very much in that sort of jazz, blues, rock vein. And I would say the last song that we're going to play later on in the pod, that song is a fantastic song, but I think it's it's made even more so because of his, his piano playing. So, like, he's amazing. But, it's you know, Bobby Caldwell, 
who uh, was a drummer and I totally rate him as well as, as someone who's um, currently learning drums. His sound is just, he gives it the, the drive and the momentum that the songs demand, but it's never overbearing. It's never, it's never harsh. It's never crashing. It's, it really sort of underpins and is this great foundation. And it's, it's interesting because there's a live video of Derringer playing with his brother, Randy Z, who, who he used to play, who's also a really good drummer. It's really interesting hearing his brother play live, but listen to Bobby Caldwell on the, on the album. And they're both really good drummers, but I just think for the recording, Bobby Caldwell really nails it. And he played with, I don't know. I, I, he played with John Lennon. Yeah, he played yes. with uh, Johnny Winter as well. Yes. And like quite a few other people on this album, Ringo Starr. <laughs> yeah, Ringo Starr, who then Derringer played with in the Ringo Starr's All-Star Band sort of a couple of decades later, you know, toured with him for a few years. So, Yeah, Edgar Winter also played with Ringo Starr Band. I mean, you know, there's a reason that Ringo had an all-star band. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> they, were, they were all-stars. Wow. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like there's, there's, you know, Joe Walsh is on, plays on a, on a couple of tracks. Kenny Passarelli, who was a bass guitarist who also played with Joe Walsh. So there's these kind of little, I guess, clusters of people on this record that, that Rick would have met picked up along the way who he brought together for this this record the backing singers are, are worth mentioning you know there's you know as sean would often say it's hard to find stuff on them but what is really interesting about the the backing singers uh laney groves she did a lot of her background vocal work was with stevie wonder in the 70s she has over 340 credits like when you go to discogs and you look at how many albums she sang on that there's 340 one known credits that is a lot of backup singing in my books yeah. <laughs> uh carl hall was uh, a musical theater singer performed on stage and was in new york and then tasha thomas who was the original aunt m in the whiz so again these are probably people that he met when he was in new york in different circles and they're all really fine musicians again not people who are really well known but were clearly connected and became part of his network and were brought onto this record and he doesn't hold back on the arrangements you know the the backing vocal arrangements are not the typical hard rock blues rock kind of backing vocals there's some really clever writing in there for sure yeah and there's uh, a couple other players on there joe vitale did drums on a track mm -hmm. who played with joe walsh i noticed quite a few of them seem to be involved with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, or some variation of those four people. Oh, yes. Paul Harris played with Stephen Stills. That I think you actually mentioned that record a couple of episodes ago. I can't remember what the name of that one is. Anyway. Yeah, Paul Harris. Paul Harris was on some stuff I really love. He was on Nick Drake's yes. album, John Martin. Uh, Bob Seeger, a Michigan hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you got Joe Lala on the Congos, who also played with Joe Walsh, played with Neil Young, Barbara Streisand, and 
Ringo Starr. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Tupac. <laughs> Are you saying that all roads lead to Ringo? In this case, almost all of them do lead to Ringo. <laughs> going back to Joe Walsh real quick. He this is this would have been cuz he was with James Gang originally, right? And then he had a solo career and then he joined the Eagles. Like in this I guess was a probably between those two. This would have been during his Solo years. Yeah, I think this would have been during his solo years. And we got two more players here. David Broomberg on the Dobro, who played with some lesser-known acts like Bob Dylan, Jerry Garcia, George Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely a name we've mentioned on a few records we've covered before. Yeah. Yeah, and a name we have definitely mentioned on a few records before. Gene Toots-Thileman on the harmonica. Oh, yeah. Who was on... Melanie Records, Quincy Jones, Michael Franks, who we just did. Yeah, that is a name you will see for the harmonica on a lot of albums. Very true. Well, should we get into the the dark stuff, Mel? Yeah, let's... uh... Well, he's... I don't know. He's had a few interesting kind of... Well, I don't know. I would say that the WWF stuff's a bit of the dark side, to be honest. I'm not so into the wrestling, but... um... Yeah. Just yeah, saying. I guess there's dark stuff, and it seemed like he had a cocaine problem yes. for a while and drinking problems. Yep. So there was that dark stuff, but that all like seemed cool rock star stuff, but probably wasn't actually that cool. No, and I think uh, look, I, th- I don't know. I guess it it must be challenging. Um, it's very easy to think that you know if people are working like he see, he works hard like he places a lot of you you read or listen to interviews and rick really places a lot of emphasis on working hard and he acknowledges that he's a talented musician and he's got a skill that is god-given as he would say and and he but he kind of says yeah but i've got to work you know i've got to put the effort in and it's quite clear that he's he's been a really hard-working guy he would not have met the people he's met and done the things he's done and wanted to play on all these people's or, or been asked to play, sorry, on all these people's records if he hadn't put the uh, the work in. But I think, yeah, it must get to a point, maybe it's the midlife crisis thing, I don't, I don't know, where people just kind of go off the rails or they spend too much money or they do crazy things. I mean, he was kind of, uh, he was, what, what was it he... He, uh, I don't know, he was picked up with having a handgun on a plane and and it was loaded. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Let's yeah. not get into the gun discussion, and, and, and but, was, you know, that. Yeah, and he was acting like he thought that was okay. Yeah. I have a concealed carry permit. Why can't I bring a loaded gun on an it's, airplane? I don't understand. It's a Derringer. <laughs> it's what I'm named after. Yeah, come on. This is my thing. It's my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> to clarify, that was in 2017. Yes. And he was coming into America where, as Mel mentioned, we are psychotic about our plane uh, security. safety stuff. Security. Did, yeah. Mel, did Mel mention that on the episode? <laughs> no. <laughs> Mel did not mention that in, on the episode. In the green room. <laughs> in the green but Rick tried, to, <laughs> Rick tried to defend himself by saying that he had done it dozens of times before. <laughs> which, yeah. wow. But this yeah, was wow. after... In the late 90s, it seemed like through a lot of the 90s, he didn't have a lot going on in the industry. And then he becomes an evangelical Christian. He marries a a songwriter, Jenda Hall, and they start putting out 
really bad smooth jazz records. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not the good smooth jazz. Certifiably bad. It's it's not the Yeah, it's not Bob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bobby James. Bob can go what he can be a mononym on this show. <laughs> <laughs> One of those wrestling theme songs, Real American, that Hulk Hogan used has also been used by a handful of less desirable people than Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Let me just put it that. It was a, a Trump rally song for a while. A, a reworked version is the theme song for Alex Jones's Infowars. Oh, not just that. He reworked a version and went on the Alex Jones show to present it. Yeah. And then was interviewed on that show by disgraced political consultant Roger Stone about his support for our disgraced president, Donald Trump. There's a, so he went down a real dark path. Yeah, there's a very... There, there's such an unhealthy relationship between religion and politics in the States, and we don't need to get into that. But uh, we we sit here in Australia and... Yeah, that, that's the understatement of the year, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we sit here in Australia and watch with some level of concern and bemusement because we've somehow managed to keep church and state relatively separate. But anyway, yeah, look, I think, yeah, he definitely had a, a down period. And again, you've got to wonder whether, you know, in that down period in the 2010s, probably like a lot of people after the GFC... You know, he had homes which were foreclosed. And, and again, you kind of look at musicians who've had a long life and they probably made a lot of money at some points and not so much at other points. And yeah, it's hard not to look at periods where people get into dark places and, and do and then do dumb things like release terrible smooth jazz records, <laughs> which sully their legacy as a musician. That's the real crime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't need any more yacht rock. Yeah, no, but uh, so I think, you know, when you look at someone's career overall, you have to kind of maybe take the, you know, p- pinch of salt. And uh, that's why I think it's good to appreciate records on their own merit and kind of divorce all of the things that the artist may or may not have done at that point in their life, you know, from the record and yeah. appreciate it for what it is. Because I, you know, I mean, I was listening to some some Prokofiev yesterday as I was and uh, it was actually the Romeo and Juliet and you know I very sarcastically said to my husband Bennett it's Russian music you know and we we have to be very careful about how we decide to sideline things or censor things you know and take things out of the cultural milieu because of something that's happening now that has nothing to do with the artist or the musician or the composer and the piece of music and when it was written. And I I think it can get very dangerous. We can become very censorious. And uh, I think that it's very easy to kind of consign things to the rubbish tip, you know, and I think that's one of the great things about this podcast is that, you know, we're taking things that maybe have been consigned to the tip, you know, they're in the $1 bin and we're saying, well, actually, no, let's pull that back out and, and actually listen to it and, and, give it its dues and think about the context within which it was made and remove sort of our our 21st century biases <laughs> from mm-hmm. our ears. <laughs> yeah, it's also such an unhealthy part of hero worship to try and paint people as these purely good or bad figures when in reality, a lot of these great artists especially are very complicated and broken people who have 
they have their good side and they have their bad side and they have a long complicated history and it's it's okay to view the good and the bad and still appreciate what you want from it well i think that's also funny because a lot of rock and roll songs are about the struggle between the good and the bad (laughs) true (laughs) (laughs) they celebrate it all or or at least uh, put it on display they're they're on a highway to hell right (laughs) (laughs) true and Rick Tarringer had an undeniable extended prime, I would say, there from, you know, the 70s and the 80s with all the stuff he was on and the music he was making. He was, uh, he was at a peak that we can appreciate. Well, Sean, I would like to find out what you have for recommended albums, similar albums. Yeah, I've got three recommended albums. And I also have a user review to read <gasps> another all caps user review well it's not all caps but there's some caps there's enough to make it qualify you would think with a record like this that i would have had a wealth of hilarious user reviews to read but i only found one good one but it's the the segment is back for one quick review so do you you want the review or do you want the the recommended albums first i well the first time we did it you gave us the uh all caps review first so let's keep to that all right, because you don't mess with tradition. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this one is titled, Great! I'm a big fan of Amazon. The web at its best. I CNA find the old, quote, albums that aren't at stores and then find the cheapest, parentheses, least expensive, quality <laughs> products. I love this whole CD! I had the album with the first tracks broken off the album, then somebody broke it the rest of the way. This is when an album was an album. It has everything. Rock, (laughs) instrumentals, leads, love songs, words, or wisdom, parentheses, uncomplicated. If you don't know Dick, parentheses, Rick, this is where you start. Thanks to the Winters, Johnny with Rick and Edgar with Montrose, parentheses, S-E, Ronnie Montrose, America is rock and roll. <laughs> Long live rock. Five stars. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, you know, Sean, I wouldn't be surprised if you like get hit up by a, a producer of like a TV show looking for a character along these lines uh, to, to portray <laughs> an enthused, uh, an unhinged, but enthused rock and roll fan. <laughs> You know what? I'll take it <laughs> wherever this road leads me. I thought you were going to say that, like, I was going to get hit up by someone who's written one of these reviews. <laughs> we've, we've had multiple musicians <laughs> related to records we've talked about hit us up and be like, oh, let's give you some more information. I want someone who wrote one of these user reviews to hit me up and be like, you really captured the spirit of what I was trying to put on the Internet with this. <laughs> I, I'm not concerned that that will happen with this person uh, because they were talking about a compact disc instead of uh, the record version true and seemingly like amazed by amazon like i found this crazy new website guys five stars okay so uh let's move on to the recommended albums here the first one that came to mind i think has a lot of similarities in sound is an album we featured before nils lofgren one plus one from 1971 it has the rockin tracks and it has that surprisingly produced and interesting cinematic sound as well. So if you're into this, definitely pick that one up. They pair very well. Another one that we featured earlier on in the podcast, I think has some similarities is Paris's self-titled album from 1976. Oh yeah. Remember doing that one? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob Welsh from Fleetwood Mac. True. Trying his hand at some experimental hard rock in the 70s. And then my last suggestion, which I think my favorite track of this album actually sounds a lot like one of the songs we featured tonight, BTO, Four Wheel Drive from 1975. It's got the hard rock songs, and then it's got the pop hits like Hey You that I think... Uh, the, the the acoustic like intro to Hey You I think sounds a lot like Joyride that song we played earlier. Yeah, I, sooner or later we'll do BTO. Yeah, at some point. Yeah, <laughs> it's got to happen. Anybody else got any recommended similar albums? No, no, nothing. <laughs> All right. Every time I ask, it's the answer is no. <laughs> well, the seventies were you know it was a fertile decade for guitar innovations and you know that kind of sp- sprung from the late 60s you know hendrix and clapton and those you know the whole and, and of course the great legacy of blues guitarists so i think you know there's a there's a lot of it's very easy to just stick that classic rock kind of label on things and go i don't want to listen to that but you could pull out a robin trower record he he was originally in Procol harem Fog Hat, which I think you mentioned before, Blackfoot. There's a there's actually some really great free. There's some really good songwriters in those mm-hmm. bands, and the musicianship in many of these bands or the it's just is actually quite outstanding, you know. And I think yes, you know, I mean, it was interesting when Jeremy and I were trading emails about this. He said, you know, I get the sense that this is a, that Rick's a bit of a musician's musician, and I'm like, yeah, he. That's probably. That's definitely where I connect with this record. You know, he is a musician's musician. He's not afraid to show his mus- his virtuosic musicianship. And that's kind of great. And I think we don't see that very much in rock music now. I think that's really the domain of certainly jazz has always been the haven for mu- for a high level of musicianship. But the metal scene is full of amazing musicians. And again, a lot of people don't like metal and that's completely fine. But I, I do think that it's a bit sad. We don't quite see the interest or commitment of audiences to a high level of musicianship that we might have seen in the 70s. You know, you watch these video clips of people playing and I know this is exactly what punk rebelled against but people are genuinely sitting there listening to music people are not very good at sitting and listening to music these days as someone who's been going to a lot of concerts and yeah so I think uh sorry that was a very long explanation but I I think you could kind of pull out a whole bunch of things and just remove that label and go I'm going to give this a go those are good thoughts and you know Mel I have a a question for you just kind of random but how big are the easy beats in Australia? Well loved. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there's probably a lot of people who still, I mean, they are kind of, you know, their Australian history, their kind of legacy, their, yeah. I, I, I think even my son's generation will, will have learnt about them at, at high school, you know, when they cover Australian rock music or the history of Australian music, yeah. Why? That's an interesting question. Well, for those who don't know, that was the band that included George Young, older brother yes. of Angus and Malcolm Young yes. from ACDC. And they were, I think that they rivaled the Beatles, at least in uh, for as far as popularity in Australia, probably. But they, they have the uh, Friday on My Mind is their big hit, right? Huge song. Yeah. And, you know... It, Talking of musicians, of speaking of musicians as we were, of you know, com- complicated lives and difficulties, you know, they there were some pretty 
tragic things that fell out of that band, you know, as time went on. And But that song, I think it has a huge affection in, you know, Australian culture. And uh, there's, a, there's a really great book that I bought recently and it's 50 songs that make a name. What's it called? It's sitting on my bookshelf. Basically, it was written by an Australian rock journalist. He, he chooses 50 songs and kind of talks about the history of, of contemporary or rock music in Australia through those and, and about Australian history through those songs. And it's, I don't necessarily like his writing style all the time. I find it a bit sort of, yeah, a bit frustrating, but the songs he selects were all pretty right on. And that's one of them, obviously. And he talks about how they did rival the Beatles and they created this enormous sort of swell audience, audience sort of swell of support you know in the UK as much as anywhere else they were massive but uh when you're a long way from home bad things can happen <laughs> yeah I just I just was curious because you know that like you were we, in the the states we know ACDC but I don't think a lot of people know that part of their history of their older brother having this band that was huge they were so. those families Vander and Young families are like just hugely influential in Australian music, even to today. And, you know, they're both immigrants, which is a key part of Australian history, but from a particular era of immigrants and how they met and where they met and how they got into music. You know, it's, I don't know, we owe a lot to to them. So, yeah, even if you don't like ACDC, I think it's hard to to kind of take away how important they are for Australian music culture. So it's taken me a while to come around to ACDC. I grew up in an area where people loved Akadaka, you know, and that was not my thing. I found I, I didn't like the music. I thought it was very um, crude. I, I guess I didn't understand it. And I wouldn't say they're my favourite band now or anything like that, but I have a much greater appreciation for what they bring as a group of musicians and their kind of overall approach, I guess. They're very clever and they've made a ton of money. <laughs> so you got to admire musicians no denying that. do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. do we have any last thoughts turning back to Rick Derringer on this record or anything else with his story or do... He's still out there making music and kicking. He's done 16 solo albums at this point total, so maybe he'll he'll have a redeeming rock and roll comeback soon. We'll see. (laughs) Yeah, I think he's – look, I think it's interesting. You know, he kind of seems to wax and wane. I think, you know, the the hardcore guitar nerds all acknowledge his his place in rock history, but uh, I I think it's hard to see him making a – a big comeback, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Oh no, this this episode is going to do it. <laughs> millions of listeners. We're going to shift it yeah. from the one dollar bin to the five dollar bin. Is that right? That, that's yeah. oh, yeah. lighting the flame over here. <laughs> All right. So, what track are we going out on then? Uh, we're going to go out on the last track, side two. As it says side two on the record. Can I just say that? That's why I keep saying side two. It doesn't yeah, say side A. It says side two, track six. You, you, know, you know, Mel, the, the reason I think that we adopted that formula is because uh, Discogs list things as A1, B3. Oh, yes, they do. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. But obviously some records use 
other language besides yeah. or <laughs> they you know people get clever with the way well they, they now use colors words. which i just think is kind of ridiculous for people who have color blindness <laughs> you know, and, and other <laughs> other struggles with you know visual issues you know so no i think side one side two a b c whatever whatever floats your boat but it's uh side two track six jump 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 by crisscross. Jump and not by Van the Van Halen, Halen jump. Although jump. <laughs> Eddie had a lot of time for Rick, and Rick had a lot of time for Eddie. The Pointer Sisters. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the program, Mel. We're glad that we were able to dial you in all the way from down under. <laughs> <laughs> It's been great to be on the show and I thank you for allowing me to nag you, which is an Australian word for bugging someone into featuring this record. It has lots of nice connections with other albums that have been covered on the pod and uh, maybe you'll indulge me another time. Absolutely. Oh. Please come back. Yeah. Thank you. Until then, this has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar and my name is Peter Cook. I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Melanie, the guest. Thank you. Mm-hmm.